Welcome to the Testing Habits Podcast. This is Eduardo Noyu. Today I'll be speaking with Marcus Bord, Principal Researcher at CodeScene and Associate Professor at Lund University. Marcus works at the intersection of applied artificial intelligence and software engineering. He is also on the editorial board of Empirical Software Engineering Journal and is a department editor for the IEEE Software Magazine. So we'll talk a little bit about software engineering intelligence, AI engineering, chat GPT, safe AI, requirements engineering for AI, regulations on AI, and many other topics. As you'll hear in this conversation, we cover quite a lot of ground. So without further ado, my conversation with Marcus Borg. Thanks, yeah. Marcus, for being here. Thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm I'm so happy to discuss with you uh, about so many interesting things, um, and it's hard to actually know where to start. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you're uh, you're doing you're doing interesting research, um, and you're working in a in an interesting field. Um, but yeah, for the ones that don't know you. How do you describe what you do and the problems you focus uh, on in your career? Yeah, I have very broad interests, as you know, we have discussed before you and me at the end. Uh, this can also be seen in my in my publication. So I am kind of a generalist. And um, to be honest, this is not always a good thing. Of course, it's a blessing and a curse. You turn into this jack of all you know and a master of none perhaps but i hope my, i'm a master at some things um but i'm really passionate about software and, and the engineering behind software so finding ways to develop better software faster i mean these three words they uh, they mean a lot to me finding ways to develop high quality software that is you know fit for purpose and uh, within the available resource budget that's what engineering is about and then software is of course such a cool phenomenon uh, it's unique in in several ways and uh, you never run out of cool aspects to study but what i do i mean if i say if i describe myself as a researcher i typically say i do quality assurance research that would be my my big umbrella and that's what i used to to cover many interesting aspects such as uh, requirements engineering uh, processes and practices certification and then of course uh, it tends to end up with software testing fairly often and that's fits very well for this pod right mm. so um, um my phd work it focused on um, leveraging big data trying to find all this very valuable data in large-scale software engineering projects and uh, finding patterns and proposing recommendations uh, accordingly. Training machine learning models has been a big part of that. And that's how I got interested in um, the whole AI thing. And um, it actually took quite some time before I um, felt comfortable with the term AI. I, I didn't, didn't really like it, but now I'm actually fine to call call um, my, my type of research AI for software engineering. And that's um, what I do now with uh, with CodeScene. And um, I've also done uh, work on, um, uh, as you know, uh, software engineer for AI. So the, the other side of this coin, I largely reversed my perspectives there when I defended my, after defending my, my PhD at Lund University. So I worked way more on how to develop AI systems and how more specifically to quality assurance and verification validation for machine learning based systems. Hmm. Mm -hmm. 
many 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 interesting um um fields of study there but i'm you you're both working in industry and i guess you have a a, a foot in in um in academia um what do you have any any observations there do you think this is uh, um you know especially for the things you're doing research in and you're working with does it make sense to be you know both in academia and in 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 uh, in um, industry uh, yes, I think it does, and it really uh, matches my interests very well. I'm really into applied research and trying to bring the good ideas from academia out to industry. Um, my foot, uh, my formally my foot in in uh, academia is twenty percent. So I'm uh, an adjunct senior lecturer, and I uh, do teach a bit, but uh, mostly I, I supervise uh, PhD students at the moment and master thesis students. Um, I've always been uh, very happy in this intersection, at this intersection between industry and academia. I was with Rice Research Institutes of Sweden for seven years after my PhD, and uh, uh, that is also another type of position that matches my 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 way of uh, doing research very well and making sure we have technology transfer and co-evolution of good ideas together with uh, industry partners. And mm. so, yes, it's not always a walk in the park to wear double hats right so i mean that's sometimes you, uh, you things get a bit uh, messy and you need to have a good understanding among your collaborators on both sides to 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 make it work um, yeah. but of course suddenly you're swamped with things on the other side and then you have to um, yeah take care of that but i think it's very good for me personally i get to learn a lot in both worlds i learn a lot now i recently joined the private sector again it has really refreshed my my uh, understanding of uh, the contemporary technology stacks and uh, how you develop and deploy and release software um, in 2023 uh, I was a bit outdated. Uh, I worked a few years with ABB before I started doing my PhD research, but uh, this is a field where things change very fast, right? And that's uh, also a part of why it's so interesting to study. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I guess it's. Um, um, I mean, what what would be what would be interesting is to also see what the differences between, you know, working with companies like ABB, which are quite big companies and the difference on doing software engineering uh you know in in small companies or web development i guess there's a big difference between yes you know the the stacks there and i'm so um, happy to see a smaller company now i've always been in huge organizations abb university rice and now it's a company with 25 30 employees it's it's so different i mean everyone is uh, close by and you get to interact with so many different roles it's uh, it's very refreshing for sure. Mm-hmm. But you you mentioned, I mean, a couple of things that were were interesting. One that what you were working at the intersect, you're working in a way in the at the intersection of quality assurance, software engineering, software testing, and artificial intelligence, applied artificial intelligence. I'm I'm wondering what 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 made made you go on this path. I mean, it's not a, <laughs> a straightforward route, I guess, to get here. Um, no, but it's 
a very popular topic at the moment, right? Uh, it's has been trending the last years. But for me personally, I I like stubbornly working with uh, with data. You know, I did that during my PhD. Um, tried to train different machine learning models, and this was before deep learning uh, turned into the mainstream approach of doing things. Um, in general, I think it's such an attractive idea that you have those large scale. Um, context lots of people there lots of information it's overwhelming there is an information overload it's it's massively overwhelming for some people and many of the challenges we have in software engineering nowadays they originate in this sheer size of, of, of the systems uh, but the machine learning models i mean they they actually benefit from having large quantities of data around so that turns into training data so you can make that data work for you it's not only your enemy it's something you can also harness and, and make it work for you and um yeah that's uh my story how i got interested into uh, in, in ai i would say mm. and i i think this is i mean we have seen quite an exponential rise i think in popularity of ai and it's used all over the place but of course including software engineering so you know we have engineers now using ai um in their daily work um and and there this you mentioned already these two aspects two different aspects of uh the intersection of software engineering and artificial intelligence um software engineering intelligence so ai for software engineering and ai engineering software engineering for ai and i i i mean i i know i know some of this aspects and how they work but i would like to take your uh, i would like to hear your take why why is it important to you know separate these emerging fields in software engineering both from a research point of view but also from a practical point of view um yeah mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's important to distinguish the two terms because they they mean different things right i mean it's uh on one hand, you have this, uh, you say, as you said, as an engineer to, to help you develop this better software faster. Um, that's one thing. And then uh, the other side is then uh, you evolve the engineering practices and processes to develop better AI systems faster. That's that's another thing. And it's uh, um, just important to clarify that we mean different things here but uh, of course you can learn a lot and there are also conferences and workshops that uh, include both those topics in in the programs but uh, um, uh, yeah that would be my answer to that but it's uh, in general I mean it's since I've been working more in the recent years before joining code scene with the software engineer for AI it's it's a new type of animal we're trying to tame here. I mean, it's uh, the development of a machine learning system. It does require another mindset because the the data is there, right? And it's really a first class citizen, and it's part of the product. And it's uh, you need to evolve your quality assurance, um, mm. and the way you uh, develop your machine learning models. It's also quite different, right? I mean, it's this exploratory work. I mean, if you if you think agile moves fast, that's that's really nothing compared to the data science loop where you experiment and experiment and experiment all the time. Yeah. And then you need configuration management on steroids, basically, because everything matters. There was this um, uh, Google 
coin principle, the cake principle, changing anything changes everything. It's very hard to know what comes out on the other side when you train a model because everything is entangled. The, the data, how you pre-process it, how you um, um, choose your model architecture and the hyperparameters in the model. And then you have something on the other side and then you need to test it. Um, and um, yeah, to support this evolution, uh, help data scientists emerge at useful models i mean we we need to um develop our engineering methods yeah but but i mean what i see from my perspective they work well together so you cannot have one without the other so you cannot it seems to me that you have se for ai so the creation of ai software as an important question and then you would use this ai which you <laughs> developed in a certain way in software mm. engineering. So it's it's almost like if you if you separate this too much, you get to a point where you know you develop things in a certain way in SE for AI, and when you get the when you get on the other side AI for SE, it's it's a bit you know um, yeah they they're different. You have different machine learning models. You have maybe different ways to work. Maybe it's good, but I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on this. Uh, well, I agree with you that AI for SE and SE for AI are not necessarily disjoint. I mean, you the thing is, just like Agile today, that was a big research topic in the past, but now it's just part of the context. I mean, everyone claims to be doing Agile in one form or the other and uh, I mean the AI tools now we have the whole um, uh, generative AI boom right with the GPT models being everywhere and uh, my prediction there is that I mean give it a year and this will really be wide, widely adopted and be part of the context for for large fraction of developers I use it myself I think it's way more convenient to uh check what chat GPT says about some Python library compared to looking for Stack Overflow answers because I get something that is personalized for, for what I need. So I've, I've used it a lot, actually. Hmm. And we have engineers here at Cozin also using it uh, on a daily basis. And not only chat GPT, there is also like GitHub Copilot and all those things that are AI. We haven't even talked about the definitions of AI, of course, but if no. we... Talk about machine learning uh, in in general, and both I guess uh, the generative AI, which is everywhere now, but we also have uh, other types of recommendation systems that are data driven. And uh, for example, what we uh, mainly develop here at Code Scene. I mean, that's would also fit into the machine learning uh, um, mm. arena, I would say. But um, we, yeah, I mean, uh, let let me maybe one one. One uh, one thing I wanted to go like more more of a tangent. You mentioned the definitions, or uh, like we didn't talk about the definition of AI. Uh, and do you have any preferred definition or one way of seeing this? Because I know there are many many opinions out there, and uh, there it's a jungle that the, the the to to look through this you know terminology. Mm. It is a jungle. And the funny thing with AI is like you know, trying to define AI has always been like, I mean, people have tried doing this since the fifties and it's kind of a moving target because what you, 
think is AI, what you thought was AI in the 50s, 60s, that wouldn't be AI actually. That would just be standard uh, uh, student assignments in a computer science course and, you know, finding like the shortest path in a graph and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's very hard. AI has always been kind of what we cannot really easily do now using conventional methods, something that is a little bit beyond what our current capabilities as developers are. So this is, of course, a problem, but it's super important now when we're, you know, trying to regulate the um, uh, the technology in different ways. And the European Union is, of course, as you know, and probably the the listeners also know, spearheading this new um, new era, new era of uh, regulated AI. And then you, of mm -hmm. course, need to have uh, an AI definition and. The problem is the jungle you mentioned and different stakeholders develop different uh, definitions. And there was this expert group within the European Commission uh, that uh, came up with one definition. And then in the AI Act that was proposed in 2021, they used another definition. And during the uh, the reviewing phase of that um, um, that AI Act, I was involved in that from uh, from the Swedish side and from the Rice side on in the national level here in Sweden. I mean, the AI definition was criticized a lot because it was just too broad. It was basically anything that was software could also fit under that uh, definition. Yeah. And they have now reworked that definition. And uh, I saw just the other week that they've decided to align uh, the European Union definition of AI with the OECD definition of uh, of artificial intelligence. And that's, uh, I think, super important that the, the major players actually uh, look at it in the same way. Okay, I, I was not aware of that. So that's new. That's new. I saw uh, new. that posted within in March. So that's... Um, mm. That's good. But yes, uh, I mean, for me, it's it has to be something that is then machine learning based or it has to have some sort of autonomy and some sort of uh, output that is used for predictions or recommendations or decisions and it needs to influence something physical and virtual. I think this is along the lines of what the new definition is also. Uh, it shouldn't be just anything that is using data and uh, using software that would be too um, too broad. Mm. But it's very hard this problem, of course. But it's very interesting to see how how it's being tackled in the European Union. Yeah, yeah I I totally agree. Um, and I mean, you mentioned ChatGPT, and I I know now I just want to go into that direction because, um, but you talked about other things that I'm interested. In. Maybe maybe we can later on come back to those, but let's just for a moment focus on ChatGPT and tools like ChatGPT uh, uh, that are now used in real life applications and software engineering. But they have been used for a while, so I I know some um, some. Um, some companies that used this technology before. Um, um, so, but many people have pointed out that it seems that this seems to be, of course, put promising, but also risky technology on our hands. And I'm coming from the from the side of I like to look first at the concerns and try to you know get those sorted out first before we all go head in. So what are your concerns from your side about where this is all headed, uh, where this kind of AI of this sort is heading in, um, in general, or and also software engineering? 
Mm, yeah, it's important to clarify whether we talk about software engineering or on a society level, right? But let's start with the engineering part, I guess. That's yeah, uh, the focus. Whatever you, you feel more comfortable, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's uh, um, so I'm not myself worried that uh, the GPT models that are, you know, we just saw it, uh, saw them, uh, you know, take the world by storm with ChatGPT, and they will be. Improve a lot very fast. I think we're really in, at the beginning of something big here. I think uh, it feels sometimes like half of the plants trying to find different ways to to use GPT models. Now I see workshops on that and uh, yeah. webinars and stuff all the time. And of course, at Codesync, we're also working with GPT models. Uh, but I'm not worried uh, that GPT models will make source code analytics as we do here with uh, with Codesync uh, redundant. Uh, on the contrary, I mean the the amount of source code that will be generated now by by humanity or by ai assisted humanity it will it will just grow faster and faster and the code will not be perfect it's uh, for us it's good because it's a, a generator of technical debt for sure uh, and the security vulnerabilities and all that and humans will not be able to review everything so i think the market for tool vendors will be there for analytics and um, then uh, GPT in the hand of uh, reckless users, of course, uh, can be risky and will introduce uh, weaknesses in the software. And it generally lowers the bar for programming, which is good and bad. Of course, it's a democracy thing. More people will get the chance to, uh, you know, use the powers of computers, controlling machines in that way. And that's cool. But that means also that less skilled developers will add more code than before. Mm. But I don't think we as human programmers will be obsolete. Uh, it's uh, Sometimes you read about that in news media, of course, but there is such a lack of software developers and you know the demand, I believe, will just keep increasing in the next years because digitalization, it drives everything now and you you need to increase the efficiency of the developers. We have to, to meet the needs because it's... Uh, uh, and of course, I mean, yeah. we've seen automation before and humans will focus on more interesting things and all that, right? But yeah, of course, it's different if you order a pizza on a Friday night uh, or if you, you know, generate uh, code for a flight controller. Uh, of course, I would be more hesitant to enter an airliner with a piece of code generated. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean... I'm 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 thinking that if if Microsoft wants to test something on you know hundred million people, they can go ahead and do that, but they do it without sometimes I guess having a clear understanding of the consequences. And maybe it's not their responsibility to do that. But I guess nowadays when you could take this GPT and use it in a company to let's say for example automate some parts of the part of the software engineering process, it seems like we we um we are not yet um in a we we are not yet in a on a at, at a point where we have explainable you know ai and make i think it, now it's 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 quite hard to assess the reliability and trustworthiness of of you know um this kind of tools and i'm just afraid that will just go ahead without actually thinking on how to, you know, have a ethical heuristic here, mm. it, even in software engineering. And um, I mean, 
let's say the example i can give you an example of test selection so i mean if we let this test selection of the uh, in in the hands of an ai i mean you could get to a point where if you're developing this kind of safety critical systems as you as you said you you will uh, you will have some some responsibility issues and i'm i'm afraid that we are going into into this without actually doing the groundwork that's my fear but you you can tell me if i'm just being paranoid uh i don't think you're paranoid and i mean the experimentation on large scale you mentioned microsoft they they do that right i mean the, they had this beta release of the copilot and a lot of people used it and now it's available for anyone who wants to use it and of course this is this is an experiment and i'm sure it has introduced a lot of security vulnerabilities for example and then we haven't talked about the legal aspects we don't really know about what it has been trained on and the copyrights involved and we'll see some interesting things there and i guess shit will hit the fan in courts and uh, we will see i mean this yeah, yeah. Uh, in american courts uh, i i i believe i, I hope i hope first so, in american courts course. yeah yeah but uh yeah i agree with you that we need to um um increase research spending on uh, risk awareness here of course i'm all um, in favor of that and uh, i think that is also happening we got uh, just a few weeks ago uh an application approved for a new phd student on software testing for ai alignment so this uh, will be uh, something new and interesting a very difficult thing to tackle but it will definitely be a bit more towards the ethical issues you mentioned here uh, but we hope we can also come up with something solution oriented and pragmatic especially we need to take baby steps in the right direction here we cannot just sit down too much and think about the problem. We need to also um, propose solutions. And that's um, our plan for that uh, PhD student. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they're, they're, my view is that we should treat it as, you know, this some, as something like drug trials. So you want to know about the cost and benefits and you want to have a slow release. We don't have, I mean, we don't want to over-regulate, <laughs> uh, of course, but we don't have anything like regulation around that. Um, so, um, I mean, we're talking now about yeah. what, what I would call narrow AI, but if we're going like 10 years in the future and we might have something closer to what some people might call artificial general intelligence, then you will get to the point where it's a being a bit worrying, um, uh, because I mean, we have the economic incentives here and they're going to push us, um, uh, somewhere, but. I don't think the economic incentives will all, always push us in the right place. Let's say like this. Yeah, and everything is so super application specific all the time when you're dealing with software and even more so when you're dealing with machine learning and AI, I would say. So uh, I'm not, I don't entirely agree that it's, you know, the, the Wild West when it comes to introducing AI. If you, for example, would do test selection based on AI-based tools, uh, I think you would have a hard time to uh, convince your uh, independent safety assessors that this is in line with the certifications they need to follow to be able to release the product. So I think it's... Um, but there is, of course, a gray zone with the semi-critical systems or whatever you would call it, where you can do things uh, that can spin out of control a bit faster. Mm. So it's interesting times. I, I'm a tech believer. Uh, in general, 
so I I prefer to uh, to be on the positive side here and uh, and cheer for it. We we haven't yeah. talked about. I mean, we have this entire thing with the moratorium now, right? That has been signed by uh, very many prominent AI researchers and AI. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, many people signed it and uh, enthusiasts. Let's say like this: you have researchers, you have um, yeah practitioners, I guess. Yes, business people. Yes. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people maybe, do, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I uh, I mean I'm I'm yeah, let's go there then. I mean, should we stop AI progress until we figure out how to do it safe safely? <laughs> I know that this sounds very strange. I mean, especially coming from a, a researcher, um and maybe absurd a bit. And um I guess my question to you would be should we wait for the its deployment in certain areas until we can do it safely? um yeah that yeah. That... <laughs> that would be the easy answer i guess to ask yes in certain areas you should certainly be very careful but that's those heavily regulated industries also where i mean automotive and uh, avionics and all that of course you need to be super careful there but uh, i mean the whole moratorium and the hiatus on ai development or the Stop and all training of uh, deep learning models more than uh, these many uh, layers. I don't know what they have proposed. I mean, it's it's weird, of course. How could it possibly possibly happen? So I think it's it's largely uh, a marketing thing to trigger debate, and that's very good. Actually, I like that. I think, to be honest, that probably helped uh, me get funding now for this new PhD student and testing AI alignment. So it's it's everywhere, right? Um, but. Um, AI AI fear funding research. It's funding but research. it's important. Yeah. I mean, we we need yeah. to increase funding. I mean, so my my short answer to this should we stop it? No. I mean, what we should do is to increase funding on on uh, quality assurance of AI. I mean, of course, that's what I do. So I think that's uh, that's obviously the thing we should do. But it's it makes sense. We need to study the uh, learn more about the risks. Need to learn more about the ethics, of course, as you mentioned, and how to do uh, requirements engineering and process and. Uh, testing for of those systems so i think it's it's not easy stopping research right i mean how we've tried that a few times i mean sweden was an early um role model and prohibited research on nuclear weapons in 1958 i don't know if you knew that but it's <laughs> and then we have the un sponsored non-proliferation treaty a decade later and now i mean mm. yeah not all regimes uh, uh respect and sign those treaties right and that's no, the problem if... right Exactly. I mean, sometimes if we don't do it, someone else will do it. Um, and that's and, my uh, I, I I think that goes also with AI researchers to a large degree. I mean, most serious AI developers think about this, but the sloppy ones don't. And um, then they wouldn't care so much about the ban anyway. But then we have, of course, uh, capitalism in play also. Right. And the market pressure to release things fast and we see that now after chat gpt how all the big players suddenly really really push for generative ai models and um, unregulated capitalism can lead to very bad effects i mean it's not enough just to um uh, trust the, the the consumers there and uh, for them to make the right choices so i'm, I'm i am a, a believer in regulated markets actually uh, that i should also say but uh, mm. regulating something as you know hard to uh, define and such general purpose technology as as ai is very hard and i i don't um, 
Yeah, it's not an easy task, but uh, I no, think no. I think it's super interesting to follow the uh, legislation now, and I think also many steps are taken in the right direction. Yeah, and I hope people that yeah, you know, the legislation is made with people that are coming from different parts of the industry and research, because I think we would need the regulation that makes sense for all of us. Um, but the idea, of course, of going to stop, you know, to stop the field or even slow it down the progress, it's just unthinkable. And um, yeah, um, and that's, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think two different things here. I mean, the 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 kind of research ban or moratorium is one thing, and regulating AI to using it in in a, in a reasonable and trustworthy way is, is another thing. And that's, I'm in that camp. You're in that camp. Yeah, I mean, I I I and I agree with you. I think they're yeah. I think we're we're almost on the same top. You know, on the same side. Um, but uh, this you mentioned the yeah, dude. Um, requirements engineering and how important it is to you i guess to um you know when you want to prepare ai for deployment you need to have the <laughs> at least the the requirements for your system in place in a in a in a good way and i i, I read your ieee software column uh, can re help better prepare industrial ai for commercial scale um, i think you wrote this together with uh, um a couple of other authors i don't remember their name now <laughs> you maybe you'll you'll tell them. but i'm yeah. quoting here yeah we uh, you said like something like we argue that the business side of ai has been underexplored and that requirement engineering can help us forward go mm. forward can you expand on this and why do you think requirement engineering is so important uh for uh you know engineering ai Yes. Um, so this was some really interesting work we did um, together with um, um, Siemens Digital Industries and uh, the uh, authors. Um, you um, try to remember there. It was uh, Boris Charanya. He's the um, he was the first author of the of the piece, and then Andreas Vogelsang from the University of Cologne and uh, Thomas Olsen, my colleague at at Rice uh, back then when we wrote this. Um, and uh, we actually collaborated with Siemens and discussed this for some almost two years. And we also did some original research there. We ran workshops and interviews. It was during the, the COVID pandemic, so everything was online, but very interesting. We didn't really publish the results from the studies, but we learned a lot in, in that work. And the column is an output of that as well. And the starting point of the column is that... Uh, Sure, AI is everywhere, and everyone is spending uh, a lot of money, and there are many promises about you know really lucrative uh, solutions. Uh, and Boris, the first author, he is from industrial AI, then so digital industries, so it's the industry 4.0 and the like. Um, and there haven't been that many uh, success stories from his perspective when it comes to industrial AI. It turns out it's not so easy to to profit on it. You can have many proofs of concept, but uh, I mean, really um, making money, that's that's a business challenge. And uh, so it's uh, a little bit different compared to the ethics we discussed about before, but this is more about the commercial side of things and how you can scale it commercially because uh, you have AI and it's often uh, very specialized and, you know, uh, I shouldn't say it's always um, 
overtrained, but it's it's specialized on a certain application and it's harder than we expected to generalize to other application areas. So, uh, and then there are many quality models uh, in the academic literature proposing different um, dimensions to look at when developing AI. I mean, you have the European Union guidelines, we have IBM has trusted AI uh, um, a quality model and yeah there are several different ones but there um, is not so much about the, the business side of things and the commercial scalability of AI solutions and um, we think that uh, requirements engineering I mean this is uh, provides an overall framework and a big toolbox of uh, of uh, techniques you can use when uh, discussing those expectations on uh, on machine learning based systems i mean i'm when requirements engineering for me it's it's a, a broad topic it's not only about you know really specifying things in a in a written document it's really about understanding the needs and it's not only the explicit needs it's also the implicit needs of of the users and um, um and this is perhaps contradicting what I said before that, okay, machine learning systems, it's a totally new animal we need to tame. I mean, but yes, but there are also conventional software engineering methods that work and help uh, machine learning engineers today. And many machine learning engineers come from different backgrounds at the moment. It's not so much software engineering, requirements engineering training necessarily in those new data science programs. And um, so it's uh, it's also a reminder for for. Um, that new generation of data scientists that we have good good ways to sit down and discuss and, and do trade-off analysis, for example. That's a very concrete thing and that's something you need all the time when developing a machine learning-based system because there are so many trade-offs always. Stakeholder yeah. analysis, trying to find, I mean, there are structured ways to, to systematize this, um, this work. Yeah, I think yeah. this is a really cool piece of work and uh, I think there, there needs to be done. I mean, pe people should do more not only research on this, but you know, when you try to um, um, prepare industrial AI for the commercial scale, I think you have this kind of per perspective that are, are important. But one thing that I, I really, really enjoyed when, while reading the article was the there were um, some um, pitfalls, I think you call them, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, pit pitfalls, like uh, specific machine learning project pitfalls and what opportunities for requirements engineering um, you can you can have. And the under specification challenge was very, very interesting because I think we see this all over the place, but I, I, I see this as a problem in, especially in AI, under specification, the gap between, you know, the requirements that you have in mind when you build something and the mm. requirements that are actually enforced. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's something that, um, yeah, and I, you know, I, when I, we're talking about general AI now, I mean, entering the picture, I mean, how would you even begin to uh, tackle that challenge? I mean, that's already hard for the narrow types of AI. But I mean, I yeah. think we're not very close to general AI, to be honest. I mean, it's a, uh, but uh, yes, this is an important challenge. And it's uh, actually also a challenge in, uh, in general software engineering projects. But uh, I mean, when AI enters, uh, I mean, then yeah. it's... Uh, but but that's the thing. We look at ChatGPT. I mean, you wouldn't consider that maybe general intelligence, but um, ChatGPT. It's the closest we have for sure. 
Exactly, because it's not as narrow in some way as most traditional narrow AI. No, no. And it's and it, and yet it's not really general AI either. It does not perfectly fit into the category as I would say it. But so a typical narrow AI would be, you know, I don't know, it will play chess, uh, play Go. Um, and and for me, it's important, like from a, from a software engineering point of view, like let's say the, the, the use of AI for software engineering, in software engineering. Um, you have many of these approaches that are AI machine learning oriented. And there, I, I think it's interesting that they're, they are not, these are not concerned with, you know, grounding this into some type of, you know, high level cognitive theory um, um, of human mind, you know, doing software engineering or a human based testing. I mean, you wouldn't consider AlphaGo as a theory of human go, you know, you will not use it like that. But it shows that, you know, when you have automated system that can beat humans or, you know, try to be as um, smart as maybe in some way as humans, we, we argue, I mean, I argue that we have something to gain from, you know, modeling human cognition and, uh, and mimicking this in our tools and in the future get something closer to what you would, I would call uh, general intel, uh, artificial intelligence, mm. but but I don't know if you have any any <laughs> any thoughts on this. Um... Yeah, it's um... yeah. Oh. Go. I think it's. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, what you also touch upon there is. I mean, the power of combining human and machine intelligence. I mean, that's uh, mm -hmm. for sure something that has uh, revolutionized Go. I mean, you you learn new tricks from the AI and you kind of model what they did uh, from a human perspective, and then you found new strategies for how to to play Go. And uh, that's a little bit along those lines of what you said about the modeling. I think, and I think we'll see so much more about that. I'm surprised. One example I have that I'm surprised we haven't seen more of is like AI generated music. How how hard can it be to uh, generate personalized hits that just tickles your specific brain in ways you really like music to be, right? And maybe if you don't like it, you will learn, uh, musicians will learn new tricks about how to, you know, mm. play music. And that can be then used to, to um, come up with new human or made music as well. So I think we'll see a lot of that, actually. It's a computational creativity is, is a really, really cool field, I think. And combinatorial creativity as well. So this uh, I'm looking forward to the future. I mean, it, it, yeah, I haven't checked all, uh, all this field of, you know, uh, music generated by AI and see how, how, how oh, this, this goes. Neither but have I, I, but I know that Spotify is worried about it, of course, for example, uh, that's nearby here. So <laughs> I can I'm... understand. I can understand why, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, like <laughs> anybody who's played with, let's say, I, I will take this example because a lot of people play, played with chat GPT. And they realize it does many things, maybe not super well, but it's almost like it's a, you know, um, a jack of all trades. It does a lot of things, but it is not the master of those concepts. It almost feels like when you get an answer that you have to improve it somehow. It's, uh, it's so you, it, you, um, so it's almost like you can talk it about chess and it will play okay chess for a little while, but 
probably eventually it will just not because it doesn't understand the rules of chess mm. it will have problems so i'm taking this example so for me it's obvious obviously when we talk about um artificial general intelligence i'm expecting something that's more trustworthy and reliable um than what you would have now in 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 the case of chat gpt so yeah um, i agree and for sure more transparent about when it is just uh making crazy guesses and hallucinating things with yeah but, exactly uh, yeah yeah but i guess that that you discover this and then you fix them and you go yeah forward. but i have a on the on the contrary i would say that sometimes it's the opposite also i mean you have now an example where you like push it and you, then you reach its limits and you see that i had to improve on the answer it gave me but sometimes i mean what is it really good at it's really good at natural language so what i use it for also is you know i write something and then i tell uh chat gpt to revise it can you revise this for clarity and reduce it to 80 percent of the words or something like that and then it's a master and then it does it better than i do it so that's uh, that's a bit scary also because i'm a trained technical writer and sometimes it's uh, but it's, uh, it's of course something you you want to do in tandem it's uh it's a new tool i mean we had spell checkers then we had uh, grammarly and the like and now we have this type of revision support so i think it's natural evolution yeah yeah i i know i know and i i think it's it's in i'm yeah i think this is very very convincing and i, I really like this way forward but i have the impression that we created the technology that makes the cost of producing um nonsense and nonsense that passes for knowledge almost go to zero i mean it's basically like that i i mean i'm i'm <laughs> i'm at that point that people actually think that this is ai and i i'm in 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 a way for me it's like hmm, maybe it's not the ai that i was thinking of you know that's what that's yeah. what i'm and now we're reaching the societal level of the question you answered before about where yeah. we're heading with all this of course and that's very interesting to discuss and we don't really know but we're for sure going to face issues i mean the world spins very fast and uh, a substantial part of the population will be tricked by this um and um, of course we've had scam like nigerian prince scam emails in the past we've had that for decades right but now you will soon i believe receive you know those personal deep fake emails with video chats of your grandchildren desperately asking for money you know in a bad situation somewhere and people will transfer money of course and that would be very very hard to to assess the provenance of such such i mean my parents would of course be tricked by that so i mean it's but critical thinking has never been as important as the day to teach and it will become even more important so exactly I yeah. but i i would say that the same thing about let's say the use of ai in safety critical systems so you could use this to fool the assessor very very easily <laughs> mm -hmm. so now the question is what you know it's like how can we prepare for an ai future where organizations are using ai and then they they use it in a certain way where the assessor might have even problems comprehending how they did things i think this comes this puts a lot of pressure on the assessor let's say i just give that 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 uh -huh. okay. so you need critical thinking you know <laughs> you need an ai with uh, an AI, um, 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 an assessor with critical thinking you know it needs to be educated on how to spot the potential yeah, problems i think so the assessors could be trained that's uh 
they are not as many as the general public, right? So it's probably possible to to train the assessors and provide them with tools that really can be used to assess provenance in different ways. But uh, it's uh, also a part of engineering ethics, of course. I mean, we need to teach that also. We've had scandals before. I mean, we had Dieselgate and all that. I mean, you can't trick assessors. Um, of course. There are ways yeah. to do that. But it's, of course, uh, if you have more powerful tools, yeah, mm-hmm. the assessors will need more powerful tools too. But in general, I, I, I believe most uh, engineers are working uh, in, uh, in ethically uh, motivated ways. But uh, And if they don't, I mean, it's a lot of uh, trustworthiness at play, uh, yeah. risked also. So, but yeah, I'm... I, I'm, I'm saying that in, in my mind, all these problems that you, you mentioned at the society level, I see them also mm-hmm. at the company level. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and you could, for me, it, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a future where you could imagine a system that would compute the consequences, sort of like, you know, Asimov's law <laughs> approach. Uh, you take this, I take this as an extreme. But the, the whole idea is like, can we actually compute the consequences to a company, society, uh, well, that society level, it would be harder, but I think there are places where you can compute these cons- consequences. And, you know, I, um, I'm, yeah, I think this would be an interesting way to build something that it has an ability to compute consequences and represent certain values and reason over them. You, you know, you know what I mean? So it's like, for example, in the case where you, the chat GPT is, you know, making stuff up. I mean, mm. I would expect the, the, the engineers to have figured this out before they actually did it, because I am thinking that they, this, I mean, we should have this value in, included in, in, the, in, the, in AI um, mm. um, um, to start with. Mm. Um, it's just common sense for any type of, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe this I'm... is interesting. You made me think in new ways here. I haven't thought about this with tricking assessors in the software engineering context as much as before. But I mean, you're right, of <laughs> course. I mean, there's, if the assessor asks for a review protocol, I mean, you could just generate it on the fly and get the perfect review protocol or a, a process describing how you do uh, test selection or something like that. I mean, a GPT model could just provide it in real time when the assessor asks for it. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. yeah. Cool. I, I think it. I didn't cool. think about that. Yeah, good. I, I'm, I'm happy to generate hypotheses here and things that can be uh, uh, researched uh, by by people. Actually, I'm I'm looking forward to people hearing this, doing the research, and I can read it because I don't know if I want to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm I think we're I think we discussed quite a lot about so many so many things. I I actually, but I I wanted just to get your uh your uh, your thoughts on a project that you're uh, you're running i think until 2022 if i uh if i if i'm wrong if i'm not wrong yeah. on safety analysis and verification and validation of safety critical uh automotive systems uh and these are systems that em- embed machine learning components if i'm if i'm right so this seems like an interesting endeavor and very much related to what we talked before of course and yes I'm I'm wondering what are the main takeaways of your research in this area? I mean, can you really safely engineer deep learning for such applications? Um, yeah, well, the main takeaway there would be 
yes you can do it right i mean it's also uh yeah uh, but it, it involves a lot of work you can have safe machine learning I'm, I'm i'm convinced that you can have that but there are a few things to set set straight then to make sure the listeners are following here i mean first what what is safety in this context the automotive context i mean it's it's a negative system aspect actually i mean it's something it's about something that isn't there so when dealing with a safety certification of an automotive system i mean you talk about the absence of unacceptable risk and that of course opens up for interpretation argumentation what is acceptable and what are the risks and all that uh, and then you do this argumentation and you collect it in in a safety case which is this structured argument backed by evidence not generated by GPT model, real evidence, uh, hopefully. And this is what the independent assessors then scrutinize um, before you get the certification. So this is uh, this is what what what's we mean by safety. And then uh, when we worked in our smile project, we worked, this has been ongoing for a while, this project. So we worked with ADAS, so the advanced driver assistance systems. So it's it's really on the lower end of, of automation levels. There is a human there. Someone is behind the wheel, operating the vehicle and responsible for operating the vehicle. So we're not talking about full autonomy. We have a driver. Uh, so a safe and easy way to develop a safe system here, an ADA system that can intervene, is a system that never does that. It never intervenes. And then it's safe because, uh, yeah. Uh, but then it's not very useful. Of course, it doesn't add any value whatsoever if it never does anything. Uh, so we worked on uh, emergency braking systems, pedestrian emergency braking systems, um, and, um, and then we worked with uh, machine learning models that are trained once and then deployed in the vehicle. They didn't learn along uh, during operations. This is also very important to 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 mention. So just to <laughs> so a lot of caveats here and a lot of restrictions, limitations. But this were the type of of systems we worked with, and uh, but already with those simplifying conditions i mean it needs a lot of work and you need to think about what can happen so you have false negatives failing to break when there is a pedestrian right and uh, since it's an assistance system there is a driver paying attention i mean that's how it should be used and the human driver is responsible so that's that's not the issue because that's controllable by the driver but it's the other way around i mean it's a false positives when you just suddenly hit the brakes and the driver has no controllability at all. It's an emergency braking system, so it's just full stop, right? And then you have dangerous, uh, possibly hazards. Then I mean, you could have rear end collisions. Um, it's sometimes called co braking for ghosts. I mean, maybe there was a plastic bag or something, or something, some reflection that made your vision system detect uh, mm -hmm. a false positive. And then, uh, yeah, this is attack. This is a real. Uh, hazard that needs to be tackled by safety engineering. So we worked on on a safety mechanism there to uh, a neural network supervisor that rejects uh, the input if it's highly uh, uncertain, if it doesn't at all resemble what you had in the training data. And then, of course, we talked about requirements engineering before. We had uh, requirements engineering strictly in place, and then we tested and tested and tested and showed how uh, how um, how we reached our um, our targets. So that was a lot of fun in that project, um, and we yeah. followed. Yeah, sure. No, no, no. Go ahead, please. I just want to give some credits to um, to the the kind of overall framework we worked with. Um, 
So, I mean, it was uh, an emerging or a new standard, actually. It turned into a standard last summer. Uh, SOTIF, the safety of the intended functionality for the automotive sector. It complements the previously existing functional safety one ISO 26262 that everyone knows in, in the automotive industry. And then we uh, uh, developed a safety case uh, by following AMLAS. So it's a framework uh, from the University of York in the UK. They have been working on safety for decades. It's called the Assurance of Machine Learning for Using Autonomous Systems, AMLAS. And um, it really helped us to, to structure our, um, our safety case. So we're very happy about uh, the work they did there. Mm. Yeah, and it uh, has been uh, publicly uh, released now, this demonstrator, and the safety case has been published in Software Quality Journal, so we're very happy for that. It's publicly available and open for anyone to scrutinize, and hopefully we can build on it also in the future. I think this is really interesting, and that's why I also brought it up, and I was really curious about it. And I, I think it's interesting when you talk about deep learning systems, uh, um, they're heavy, I guess, on big data and, you know, you and using this, some particular techniques, they, but, but, but they, oh, I guess, I mean, I'm not a <laughs> deep learning expert, but they have a pretty superficial representation of, you know, the problem. That's why they, they, you, you would, when you have, you use deep learning in this cases, because um um you can be i guess in some in this narrow ai i think you can be confident of so if an, even if a system that navigates turn to turn there is a problem like the, i don't know the map would be out of date there, there is a i don't know a broken bridge or you can mm. i mean the, but still you can trust the algorithm um, um 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 but we still don't really know how they work and we yeah i mean <laughs> we kind of do um 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 so i i think it for me it's still i mean i'm coming from the formal verification also side mm -hmm. where i yeah. like to for, formally verify algorithms then you'll uh, have a hard time in I, this in this I, space yeah, yeah i know i know <laughs> but still i'm i i like to come with that mindset where it's yep. uh the this paradigm seems to me um um yeah problematic from a verification point of view. Yes, but, but there are also researchers trying to do that, right? Trying to scale up the form verification yeah. methods. So, I yeah. mean, uh, yeah. There is some work there, but I, 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 I there are some, some, some problems there. Oh, yes. I, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting to talk with you about this. And I, I could talk, I could talk about with you like hours and maybe we should do a second, a second, yeah. uh, uh episode maybe um but i i just want to ask you like three last questions and i usually ask them to every every everyone i talk with mm -hmm. and and one, one one is the what is the one common myth you want to debunk about software engineering and i mean it could be software testing quality assurance yes um so i would debunk something that scared me a bit when I was a student. So I think it's uh, something I would have needed to, to, to hear back then. So I was afraid of all the super advanced algorithms and all the textbooks. I mean, I, I feared the future. I mean, where I as a software engineer in industry would have to come up with all those super smart solutions in the computer science textbooks and complicated programming language constructs used in ingenious ways. And, uh, you know, it's I had this feeling that source code in, in industrial settings, it must be super difficult to comprehend, right? 
uh, and this is a, a myth I would like to debunk then. I mean, if you if the code you encounter in industry uh, involves super complex functions, then someone does something wrong, probably. I mean, that would be then an example of uh, of technical debt, something that should be refactored and simplified. So it's not about the, the, the very hard algorithms you, you need to implement. You need to implement simple solutions and reduce complexity as much as you can. And simpler, the better. It's, it's not like you're going to implement advanced data structures uh, like red black trees and whatnot uh, they are standard libraries nowadays uh, that's not the kind of complexity you you should fear as a, as a student it's um, the complexity comes from the scale of having many people and having many many components uh, working in interconnected ways so it's hard to overview what is going on but you know on the individual on the file level and the functional level it, it shouldn't be uh, that complicated and hard to understand but it's opposite. So that was a yeah. myth. I was, uh, yeah, uh, as I said, I, I would have needed to he hear this when I was a student. I totally agree. I, I think that's a good myth to debunk. <laughs> While you're there in, 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 in industry, you can start there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, and, and maybe this is related, I guess this is related to the next question, but uh, maybe there is a, an advice that you have for students getting started in software engineering ai engineering um today yeah yeah again the student perspective then um i mean it's congratulations for choosing such an interesting field i mean that's that's cool you're in for a ride software engineering it uh, reinvents itself all the time so keep curious i mean it's uh you need to keep uh Stay on top of what is happening. I have two two pieces of advice for, for, for that. Then I mean, it's maybe for some of you it works, for some of you it couldn't. But uh, I mean, for me, it has always been good to have some kind of pet project, something I, I care very much about. Maybe something um, that uh, is connected to an, uh, a hobby I'm passionate about or some, some pain point in everyday life I hate to do. And something that I can kind of uh, keep evolving over time and if you do that, if you have something that you really like, it's a good chance that also others will like it. So open source it and take care of it. And you know, as you learn things in new courses, as you learn about testing, you can try your test techniques on, on this uh, project and take care of it like you would take care of your garden and make it your display window of your skills. I think it's really good to have such something like that in the CV. I would look for it definitely if I was recruiting someone. Mm. And then, uh, I mean, the second one is about this crazy speed of everything uh i mean you, you need to find good ways to to learn uh, develop your learning skills early and this is individual these are different we have different ways of learning but i mean you need to go beyond the the course descriptions and the textbooks you need to find ways to learn uh complement the textbooks by you know learning from youtube and blogs and all that but people do that already i think but that's why I also want to say compliment here. So don't skip reading the textbooks. That's actually a piece of advice I have as well. I think, I mean, as an instructor, I carefully choose, select a good book for the students among the many available. And, you know, the authors spend a lot of time collecting information, writing books. So the books are also good, but I'm, I, I love physical books. I mean, it's um, your difference. <laughs> I, I do the same. Yeah, I, I see your bookshelves books. in the picture there, right? It's, uh... No, this is just a part. Uh, ah. But uh, yeah, I think this is good advice also for course responsibles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah, to make sure that this is, you know, done in a good way. 
um yeah so maybe I, the last question would be where can people find your work and how they how can they get in touch with you i mean just to yeah yeah um i do have a website personal website it would be mercusberg.com so my name without vowels.com and um uh, then i'm uh, available on email marcus.borg.cozine.com for sure i'm on twitter and um yeah please reach out if you have any have any thoughts or questions good but yeah i will leave the i will i will leave the um, i will write the the, the website and uh, the twitter handle and uh um in in the notes so people can re reach your website and i guess from there they can uh they can uh, they can look for the some of the aspects we talked today and some of the projects we mentioned yeah indeed. um yeah but now i think yeah thank you thank you marcus this was a pleasure i i'm getting inspired now just by talking with you have like for an hour um and i really appreciate you doing this yeah thanks for inviting me to the podcast Thank <laughs> you.